Welcome to Final Fantasy Weekly. I'm Drew Creaseman. And I'm Ira Creaseman. And on this episode, we continue our conversation on the plot, themes, and characters of Chrono Trigger. When last we left our heroes, they had just faced off against the almighty Magus as he was attempting to summon Lavos. Uh, actually, as it turned out, in an attempt to destroy him and not, as we thought, in an attempt to unleash him. Nonetheless, like any good, foolhardy, but courageous Gryffindor-like heroes who rush into <laughs> to, to save the day without necessarily thinking things through because of the arrival of Chrono and Frog and friends, uh, depending on who you take in, in your party. A giant portal is opened and our heroes and Magus are sent scattered throughout time. Before our heroes wake, there is a dream sequence where Chrono is woken up much like he is at the beginning of the game, but instead of his mother coming in, calling his name, and casting wide the drapes, it's Marley. She uh, has come to wake up Chrono, and then she calls him sweetie, and then she says, we can't keep mooching off my dad, you gotta go out and get a job, which is kind of cute. I wonder whose dream that is. Yeah, it, it's not, I don't think, made especially clear, but I think it's a great moment of charm that speaks to why this game is so beloved that in the middle of this craziness, I see all of these people scattered through time and Lavos and all this crazy stuff going on, you've got this very banal, mundane, kind of everyday dream that you know most of us would our lives would be like this not 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 saying that anyone here would know what it's like to be told <laughs> to go get a job wake up get out of bed I don't know what that means I have no idea what's going on but it, it's almost boring in a beautiful kind of way with all of the other chaos that's going on our heroes wake in 65 million BC that is the ancient past like you do. As one does, the musical cue tells you pretty quickly when you are. And we wake up to find out that Kino has been kidnapped by the Reptites. The war between the humans and the Reptites is still on. You go out and you do some searching and you find not Isla's town, but the next town over has been, has been raided by the Reptites. And they're pissed at Isla because Isla's fighting too much. Like, you know, if you would just not fight them then this sort of thing wouldn't happen and isla says to the old man you know i i will always fight for as long as i can i'm never just going to lay down and take it and she says uh and i'm paraphrasing a bit but she says to the old man you're alive but you're dead inside because you are giving up which spurs the old man to allow isla and her friends to take the dactyls because in order to get to the reptite's lair which is Isla's next plan, take the fight to the Reptites. You need the Dactyls. Which are flying dinosaurs, clearly based on, but not exactly like, Pterodactyls. The way this whole ancient history is like an alternate ancient history of our own, where there are humanoids living alongside dinosaurs, but also they're all intelligent. And so you've got these flying ones that aren't straight up Pterodactyls, but, you know, they're Pterodactyls. With saddles. All right, so our heroes 
climb up to where the dactyls are and uh, they're preparing to ride them. It is worth noting here that when you get the dactyls in the distance, you can see in the sky a blinking red star. And in the PlayStation re-release of this game, this scene is another anime sequence and that draws on highlighting that as well. You, you take off on the dactyls, and I believe it closes out by kind of zooming in on that red star or light in the sky. All of you who have played the game know that this red star is Lavos. So we might take a moment here to talk about some parallels. We got this red star hanging in the sky. That, to me, very strongly parallels the meteor hanging in the sky over Midgard in Final Fantasy VII. Absolutely. Uh, one of the most iconic symbols in Final Fantasy history, and it is the logo of that game. Final Fantasy VII's logo is the meteor, and it's a pretty interesting mechanic as well because it literally hangs over you as you run around through the final act of that game, this looming threat. There is also, as is often the case with these games, an interesting parallel to Game of Thrones. There is a famous red star. Of course, everybody has different beliefs on what it signifies. It appears right after the return of dragons, and so people think it's about that. The red blood of House Targaryen. There's all kinds of stuff, but uh, a red star in the sky plays a pretty big role in that as well, which I think is pretty interesting. So I don't know what the makers of the game were thinking, but the red star of Lavos preparing to fall upon this earth puts me in mind uh, of our own red star, the red planet Mars, the bringer of war. And uh, it, just sort of a fascination with what's in the sky in general, the cosmology of, of what's out there and, and what could be coming or what it all means. And maybe it means nothing, but in this case, uh, it means that Magus did not in fact create Lavos, but rather that it fell from the sky. Right. Uh, the other thing that I think is also interesting is there are a lot of legends and myths and sometimes even uh, scientific ponderings about how life began on planet Earth. And sometimes they begin with a meteor landing. And we also know that the dinosaurs ended with a meteor landing, or at least that's the prevailing theory at this point. We don't know entirely for sure. But so this idea of the cosmos, comets, or as you put it, just things from the sky that both bring life and take life away, uh, in this case, Lavos being a more of a destructive force than a giver of life, though not entirely, and we'll talk about that in a minute, just powerful imagery that can be tied into a lot of different ancient beliefs and cultures and even you know, some scientific theory of, of modern day. It's probably why the image is used in things like Game of Thrones and Final Fantasy. These people are smart. So our heroes make their way to the Reptite Lair. It's a, it's a pretty straightforward dungeon. Uh, you do free the people of that nearby town, the name of which I can't remember. You also free Kino. And Kino is worried about Isla. Uh, Kino does not want Isla to face off against the Reptites. Certainly not without him. And But Isla says, no, he can't come. She says, if Isla dead, Kino knew chief. Which strikes me as interesting because throughout the game uh, to this point, I tend to think of Kino as kind of a pain in the neck. Like he's not as strong as we are, therefore he steals our time key. And like, why is Isla wasting her time on this kid? 
Uh, you know, he's not as strong as her, to be sure. But Isla sees something in him. Isla understands that he would be the obvious next choice to be chief should something happen to her. So eventually we find Azala, the leader of the reptites. A big, broad, green-skinned reptile person. Azala seems to have some idea of what's coming. And I always thought it odd that Azala seemed to know that Lavos was about to crash into the earth. But but he says, uh, red star falls, stain the earth red. So you fight Azala. And Azala fights back, aside from riding this giant Tyrannosaurus Rex. Fights back with various psionic powers, which is cool. You don't often see psionics in a Final Fantasy game or, uh, or in JRPGs, certainly in this era. Well, I shouldn't say that because Ness and them from... Sure. What's that game called? That was pretty Earthbound. niche from Earthbound, yeah. Yeah. Niche audience for that, though. So Azala uses psychokinesis to throw your characters around and teleports rocks up from the canyon to smash your characters, which makes me think that perhaps Azala has some foresight, some future sight, uh, can see into the future with psionics, and maybe that's why he knows that Lavos is coming. It's certainly implied in many, many ways, if not outright stated a couple of times, that the reptites are the more advanced species than the ape people. Sure. So that's just another way in which they're far more advanced. So Azala has a bit of a monologue at the end. I'll just paraphrase bits. He says, Could the heavens have truly sided with the apes? Listen up, primates, and let it be known. We reptates fought bravely to the bitter end. Which is a sentiment Isla feels like she can understand. Soon, Azala says, stones of fire will rain down. Flames shall scorch the land. The burned-out plains will slowly freeze, ushering a long, cruel ice age. What a treat. You will wish you went along with us. Intense, bro. Man, if you're going to go out, go out like a champ. Uh, <laughs> that's that's a pretty awesome way to also send a prophecy, maybe based on a prophecy beforehand. We've talked about that. They don't straight up say the word prophecy, uh, but those are the kinds of things that it would become. And it's interesting because a lot of times in fiction, again, I'll use the Game of Thrones example, we hear about prophecies from long ago. This was true in Final Fantasy IV. And then we see the prophecy fulfilled. We rarely see the inciting moment of the prophecy, why it came to be or who made it. We rarely see the person who made the prophecy. And here we see that. That's something you can do in a time travel game that allows you to go to a lot of different eras. But it's also begs the question, why does he know all of this? And what came before? Was there something that even further back in pre-prehistory? How old is this planet? You know, has, has something like this happened before? Or I think what is more likely the case, as you pointed out, he's got some psionic powers. And that's something that our modern world in this age, in 1000 AD, wouldn't know anything about. But that would be why there could exist such a prophecy. At this point, the Red Star is getting closer and closer. And it's pretty obviously going to crash into the planet soon. Isla names it Lavos, La meaning fire, and Vos meaning big. And this actually kind of bothers me because before now there had been no suggestion that there was any language other than English or, you know, whatever language they're speaking on this planet. 
so that suddenly Isla has uh, a different yeah. language is kind of odd, and it's the only time it comes up. So it's a small thing. It doesn't like break the game or break the narrative for me, but it does make me squirm just a little. I think like with a lot of the other little contrivances we've talked about or little flaws throughout this game, they do exist, and I feel like they're oftentimes overlooked because of how incredible it is. But this is definitely the kind of thing... I said it, I think, even when we talked about this last time, where if you were remaking Chrono Trigger for a modern age, you would flesh all of this out and you would give these people all different languages and this would be a far more impactful moment, I think, when you realized that it came from this language that already existed. Kino arrives with the Dactyls to save our heroes. Isla tries to save Azala, the leader of the Reptites, but Azala isn't having it. Azala refuses to go with them. Azala's going to go down with his castle. Our heroes escape on the Dactyls and then Lavos like directly hits the reptite lair like smashes into that castle specifically and creates this huge impact crater our heroes realize oh that was lavos we can beat it now while it's weak it just hit the planet it's not anywhere near as strong as we'll be in 1999 let's go down there now and fight it however when they get there they find that lavos is nowhere to be found that it's pretty clearly already burrowed into the planet, and instead of finding this destructive creature, they find a time gate. And in Chrono Trigger, when you find a time gate, you use a time gate. <laughs> Let's see what happens now. <laughs> so I want to make a t- take a moment to mention a thing real quick. You can take now that Isla and Frog are on your team. You can take them to the end of time, and you can take them to Speakio, who will teach them magic. Spikio will teach Frog water magic, uh, and it's water sure. as opposed to how for Marley it's uh, ice. Right. But Isla doesn't get magic because Isla existed before the advent of magic on this world. But Spikio notes that she's kind of badass anyway and doesn't really need magic. <laughs> right. <laughs> Isla smash. <laughs> So going through the time gate takes our heroes to 12,000 BC, the Ice Age, and the Age of Magic. So our heroes end up in a world... Covered in ice. The wind is blowing. The snow is flying. It's a barren landscape. There's nothing around. And the nothing is covered by even more snow. While the snow is falling on top of the snow to make more layers of snow and ice. It's cold. Snow, ice, and cold (laughs) and wind. And it is not at all pleasant. (laughs) It is not. When, When you play the game, if you had a time machine what era would you travel to? Nobody in the history of ever has answered the Ice Age. Right. Unless you could be at the tropics and it's like temperate, maybe? I don't Uh, know. I don't know. Uh, Pretty desolate. But our heroes do find a structure, and within that structure is a, a teleportation device known to the people of this area as a Skyway. And the Skyway takes you to Zeal.
It is a floating kingdom, something that is common now in JRPGs and has been done to various degrees of success pretty awesomely throughout Final Fantasy. You even see stuff like this in Avatar, uh, the not the last airbender, Avatar, the Pocahontas movie. Um, <laughs> the the world was called Pandora. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Um, nerd. <laughs> nerd. Final Fantasy twelve has pretty great floating country. Uh, Final Fantasy VI has famously the floating continent, which is a lot less inviting than some of these other ones. Final Fantasy III had all sorts of floating continents. Floating continents all over the place. Uh, but this... I don't know. Uh, not, not to get absurd with my top ten rankings, but if I were to rank my top ten floating continents... Oh, for goodness sake. Zeal's going to be high on that list? Zeal's probably one. Number one on the list. Is that at least as much because of the music as anything else? Yes. <laughs> First of all... Yes, and when you we'll talk about this more a little bit when we get to the music, but when you Google Chrono Trigger, the first couple of things that come up are Chrono Trigger music, Chrono Trigger walkthrough, Chrono Trigger corridors of time. That's how indelible and long-lasting and awesome this piece of music is. That being said, there's also this great reveal of you're in the way past and it looked like you were in a desolate ice age with nothing to offer and you run into the most advanced society that you will find in the world of Chrono Trigger much like a lost civilization again another famous and favorite trope of fantasy and science fiction authors from Atlantis to Valyria and Game of Thrones uh, or some other great ones and even, though with a major twist in there, you could argue Xanarkand in Final Fantasy X. One of the major tropes of those will be seeing you know, pieces of ancient ruins that are of higher technology than the age your main storyline is actually taking place in. There are artifacts and such from Zeal, much like in Game of Thrones. There's Valyrian steel, and, and there are artifacts and legends, and dragons are really the main remnants from that ancient lost civilization but zeal man is is pretty fantastic when you find all of these scholars of magic and you find all of these really advanced thinkers and people living in relative harmony it would appear and, and peace and come to learn that in a way that this rise of magic came from lavos which is what i was referring to earlier he mostly is a destructive force but for a time here he brought people great power and prosperity, but, you know, with great power and, and stuff. Right, right. There's uh, a great downfall. I think that's the phrase. <laughs> with great power comes a great downfall. Sometimes. So there's a lot of things to learn and do in Zeal. Uh, I just want to touch on a few of them uh, before we jump into what happens next. Like you said, the people here can use magic, so you can talk to people about how magic... For the people who live in Zeal, the Enlightened Ones, is commonplace. But the people who live uh, down below in the Ice Age, those Earthbound people, well, we're better than them up here because they don't have magic. You do quickly meet a boy with a cat, kind of a creepy little kid. 
His name is Janus, named presumably for the Roman deity of the same name, Janus, which is where we get the, uh, the word for January, uh, the deity of doorways looking both forward and back, which is perhaps important for this character. Uh, and what he says to you is, The black wind howls. One among you will shortly perish. So thanks a lot, creepy little yeah, kid. Thanks, kid. That's actually really like shiver-inducing, legitimately. And uh, that's a quote that would be used in the anime film that would come along with this as well, because that would echo in the ears of our heroes, as it would if you were in a magic land of advanced people and a little boy told you that somebody in your party was going to die and shake you a little bit. Also of note, you hear about the three gurus, the guru of time, the guru of life, and the guru of reason, none of whom are here because they have been opposing the queen. Uh, Masa and Mune are here, which is a little awkward considering we've got them in sword form with our frog knight. They also have a sister named Doreen, who doesn't really have much uh, much to do in the game. She does have a... Well, she might. We'll, we'll maybe get into some speculation there. But she does have a really cool quote. Am I a butterfly dreaming I'm a man? Or a bowling ball dreaming I'm a plate of sashimi? Never assume what you see and feel is real. What? <laughs> <laughs> Am I a bowling ball dreaming I'm a plate of sashimi? That's so yeah. cool and weird. <laughs> there are creatures here that you have probably seen in the future, depending on how much ex uh, exploration you've done in the post-apocalyptic future. These big, round, blue creatures with kind of spindly arms called news. Uh, just in you, not like N-E-W or anything. And you can also find them if you look around all the way back in the ancient past. So... From all the things you've seen, one thing you can be sure of is that this weird little blue blobby creature seems to make it through the ages pretty well. One of the, I think, four major races of the Chrono Trigger universe. And whatever they go through or, or do or know or what they are, they seem to make it. <laughs> there is a woman who has a plant gifted to her by the guru of life. She tells you that the queen told her she should burn it. But it was given to her by the Guru of Life. But the Guru of Life opposes the Queen, so the Queen's like, burn it. And then she asks you, what should I do? So clearly you should say, no, don't burn it. Which can come back to... Well, well it's that, uh, that Hope Baby trope we've talked about before. Right. Or finding the, the one seed growing in the far future, right? Uh, if, if the black wind howls and something bad is about to happen, well, we're going to need some kind of hope. You can also find this giant airplane thing called the Blackbird. You can't do anything with it, but you will then be confronted by one of the Queen's main people, uh, a man with long, flowing brown hair and a, and a cool cape named Dalton. And he says, oh, you're the one the prophet said would cause trouble. It's always nice when the person who creates the prophecy has a blood revenge oath against you and your, your party. <laughs> All right. That happens in, um, speaking of other time travel things, that happens in Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. when, spoiler, spoiler for anyone who hasn't seen the season, skip ahead if you haven't, uh, they arrive in the future at one point and they immediately find out that their prophecy tells them that Daisy destroyed the Earth. And she's like, wait, what? Everyone here thinks I'm responsible for the destruction of the planet? <laughs> Come on. 
So eventually you end up busting into the room of Scala and Janice. So Janice is that little boy we met before with the uh, kitty cat and the creepy prophecy-ing. Scala is his older sister. They're both enlightened ones, so they've got pale purplish-violet hair. Scala gives Janice a protective pendant, and she says, I wish I could protect you, but Mother has other plans. And Janice says she is not our mother. She looks like Mother, but inside she has changed. They don't worry too much about you having busted in in their room, which is, you know, RPG convenience. (laughs) So Scala leaves, and you follow Scala, and Scala has a pendant that will open a sealed door. This pendant looks very familiar. In fact, it is, in fact, Marley's pendant. And this sealed door looks very familiar because if you've been paying attention, both in the future and in the present times, you will have seen doors and chests with this same symbol on it. And if you if you try to interact with them, it says sealed by a strange force and gives you a kind of a somber little melody. going to do a full character study of Scala right this moment because I don't think either one of us are prepared to adequately do that and part of the reason why is how brilliant of a character introduction this is because it's so minimal like we talked about the dream sequence almost mundane in a way you see her fighting with her brother about their mother but Scala is probably the most important character in the Chrono universe. And there are all these immediate hints that that's true. The MacGuffin of this game, the Pendant, as you mentioned, or as they call it in the Spider-Verse, the Goober. <laughs> the, even the opening of the sealed door, that is uh, an iconic moment and even an iconic phrase in the history of the Chronoverse. And all of this music, as you mentioned that is immediately tied to her is central to Chrono Trigger and Chrono Cross and Radical Dreamers. And so even though we were just introduced to this person, and she doesn't get a lot of screen time in this game, it it isn't driven home through them telling us. It's just the way she is presented and all of these little clues we get that She's one of my favorite characters in the history of video games, if you can't tell. I'm gushing right now. But, yeah, this this introduction is also one of my favorites because it's so subtle. It's not, uh, you know, Balthier bursting in on his... And I love Balthier, and and I I can do a great Star Wars intro any day. But the skull is just kind of dropped into the middle of this story at this point. But we're given all of these clues to how important she is to everything that's going on. I... 
I love it. Love it, love it, love it. So we want to follow Scala because we want to figure out what's going on, but Marley's pendant is not strong enough to open the door. So a little more searching will find a room with a machine in it. We will soon learn that this is the Mammon machine. Uh, you, you put the pendant in front of the machine, and the machine powers up the pendant, and then you can open the door. So in all your talking to the various people of Zeal, there's like two towns and one palace. You come to find out that... I've already mentioned the gurus were exiled for, for opposing the queen. But also, Melchor, the guru of life... And we find out that it's our Melchor from, from the year 1000. He created this thing called the Mammon Machine. And the Mammon Machine is supposed to be able to help extract the power of Levos, deep within the earth, and will allow the people of Zeal, the enlightened ones, to achieve immortality. And the queen is all in on this. Like, that is her primary reason for doing anything in this game. I'm going to get my immortality if it kills everybody else. Melchor also gave Scala a pendant because the queen decided that Scala would be the key to powering up the Mammon machine because she's not going to put her own life on the line for, for immortality. She's going to put her daughter's life on the line. So Scala is the one who has this pendant that is able to get through the security doors to, that are meant to protect the Mammon machine and protect the queen and also allow her to interact with the Mammon machine. It's also worth noting that the word mammon comes from Aramaic, uh, through Greek, through Latin, and it is a word that it refers to evil through wealth or, or through false worship uh, and was used by medieval English writers as a name for uh, a devil, specifically a devil of covetousness, and was used by Milton in Paradise Lost uh, as, as the name of a specific demon. So... The Mammon Machine, this this machine named after coveting uh, what you ought not have, in this case, immortality. And so like Zand of Final Fantasy III or Voldemort of the Wizarding World, the people who seek immortality through the destruction of others are usually the bad guys. Yeah, and I think Queen Zeal is actually an underrated villain just kind of in the history of JRPGs because it's a pretty awesome version of that trope that's really built into the entire structure of this story with Lavos and everything that's going on. And like we talked about the, all these other great allusions and references to myths throughout our history that she fits right into that trope. And, and also like a lot of the maesters who are kind of perverting the religion of Final Fantasy X, again, spoilers, <laughs> uh, that are trying to achieve immortality at the cost of everybody else, or at least not caring that it's the cost of everybody else. In this case, Queen Zeal is all about putting her daughter, the person she's supposed to be taking care of, into this horrible situation. So, yeah, I don't know why she's not a slightly more hated villain other than she's not seen as the primary villain of this game. But she's certainly, well, well, we'll talk about this more when we get to the big questions like we asked at the beginning. Is Lavos evil? I don't know. Short answer to that when we get there, and we'll have a back and forth. I don't know. But I'm pretty sure Queen Zeal is evil. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think there's a, a case to be made that Queen Zeal has been corrupted by Lavos sort of get the impression from the discussion between Janice and Scala that she used to be a different kind of person. 
And there is, she is kind of the living embodiment of that phrase, absolute power corrupts absolutely. That's the core of the theme we're getting at here. We've busted into this meeting between the Queen and Scala and this hooded guy known as the Prophet. And the Queen says, who are you and how did you get in here? And the Prophet says, ah, your majesty, these, these are the evildoers I warned you about. And the Queen has this line, you foreigners are worse than the gurus. So in Final Fantasy V, we talked about how I don't have a lot of sympathy for people who shut out the knowledge seekers and the knowledge keepers. That, that she dislikes both the gurus and foreigners. I think that is a commentary on our times, Drew. I think it is, too. And I think it's pretty clear that the people who've been making these games and telling these stories, Yashinori Katase, for example, had a huge hand in making Final Fantasy XV Kingsglaive. And they are very clear in that story that the people who are shutting out the immigrants are not good guys. That's, that's not a characteristic to be valorized. And so I think they're making a comment on that in Chrono Trigger. And I think when you do have a story, again, the value of spec fic, where you jump around and you know... We know because this civilization does not exist in 1000 AD that this is a doomed civilization. We know at the moment we arrive. And so to see somebody in what we know is a doomed civilization seeking after one, immortality, and two, some kind of purity of what, country? Uh, as if country matters. You know, we've seen all of this, these timelines and all this different stuff as, as though that matters. Uh, it's just rendered so obviously silly and ridiculous in light of everything we've seen up to this point. So bravo to them for a pretty pretty fantastic commentary on the culture. Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. Trunkless legs say that. <laughs> so Dalton, the queen's wizard bodyguard dude, summons a golem. Even if you kill the golem, uh, you lose the fight. You are imprisoned by Dalton and the queen promises not to kill you right away, but rather, I guess, going to torture you. Uh, you're held in suspended animation until Scala and Janice, and Janice's cat, visit you. Scala wants to rescue you. Janice is a little worried that she's going to get in trouble. Like, Janice is all about protecting his big sister. But Scala says, well, these guys, I mean, they came in, they kicked ass, they might be able to rescue the gurus. Uh, very specifically... Melchor, who has been exiled to the Mountain of Woe. Whoa. The, just as Scala is about to talk to our heroes about maybe we can do this, we get this uh, familiar music cue, and the prophet comes in. And uh, the prophet wants to take out our heroes, but Scala intervenes, and then uh, Janice also intervenes. And the prophet's like, okay, maybe... Maybe I won't get rough with the princess and her little brother. And the cat, Janice's cat, at least to me, seems to recognize the prophet. So rather than killing the party, the prophet sends them back through the uh, time portal. He's, you know, he says, how did you get here? Show me how you did it. They show the prophet and Scala the time portal. The prophet forces Scala to open the time portal, throws our heroes through it, and then seal the time portal after them jerk so we got here from 65 gazillion years ago 
Uh, so we end up back in, in the prehistory era. So we're back at that impact crater specifically, and we take the dactyls back to the other time portal we know about that's stable. So our goal then is to get back to that 12,000 BC, that, that time of magic and antiquity. But there are a lot of things you can do now that, now that you've got that uh, powered up pendant. There are all those chests you can go open. There are all these doors you can open. So going back to 2300 AD, which is where the doors are, there are chests, I think, in 2300 AD also, but no doors like in 1000 or 600. Eventually, you start going through some of these doors, you get some cool items, uh, and eventually you get to the Keeper's Dome, where there is a sleeping new, that big round blue critter, uh, who asks you to please not disturb its slumber. And you open the sealed door there, This voice speaks to our heroes, and I'm going to paraphrase a bit here, but it says, To those who open the door, I, Balthazar, am the guru of reason. I once lived in the kingdom of Zeal. A great disaster in Zeal threw me into this era, and to my surprise, Lavos exists here, and, I suspect, in other periods as well. Eons ago, Lavos descended from the heavens, burrowing deep in the world's core. He began to consume our planet's energy and grow stronger. He disappeared briefly when he was summoned away by the mighty wizard who lived in Guardia in the year 600, but in 1999, Lavos claims this area and reigns from high atop Death Peak. Lavos continues to replicate. Like a giant parasite, he is consuming our world. Forced to live here, I continue to conduct research on Lavos, but I am growing old, and it's impossible to keep sane in such trying times. So before I lose it completely, I shall safeguard my data and my ultimate creation. Only by mastering time itself can you defeat Lavos. And you come into this room that's kind of like a garage, and there's a machine here. And the new pushes in some, like a ladder or something, so you can get up into the machine. And this, you find out, is a time machine. The wings of time created by the guru of time. And you can name it. And uh, I think we always just named it the, the default name, right? Right. The epoch or the epic. The epoch, depending on how the you epic. want to pronounce it. That's a lot of. Uh, that's uh, how people say the eras or an, an epoch, an epic. Uh, I prefer epoch because it doesn't sound like just the word epic. Uh. Oh, okay, fair enough. But that's whatever. I mean, the word is what it is, but it's a awesome time machine travel device. I do think it's interesting that in this time travel story, we get three different methodologies of time travel. There are the gates, our first way. Then there are the portals, which I guess just lead to the gates, but sometimes the gates lead to each other and who knows where. And then we get a an actual time machine here at this point that allows us to be a lot more free with where in time we travel. We don't have to go find a gate. We can just get in the ship and go to where we need to go. Also, with Balthazar, very similar, important character, much like Scala to the entire universe of these games. Not quite as important, and and so not... But still, pretty awesome character introduction there for Balthazar. So this time machine is just a time machine. It does not move. It's like the time machine from H.G. Wells's time machine, where it just it travels through time. It does not travel through space. And yet you can travel to various points uh, in the timeline that you have access to. You can open up those chests. 
though it's best not to open them up. So there are chests that exist throughout 600 AD, but if you open them in 600 AD, you get a weaker form of the item. If you open them in 1000 AD, you get a better form of the item because uh, they got to like marinate in the magic box for a while, I guess. There are various things you can do. Um, you can find out from the Chancellor in 1000 AD. There's this really heart-wrenching scene where the Chancellor talks to Marley about her mother uh, and how her her father never really treated her mother all that well. Her mother died when she was like four or something, four or five. And there's this whole thing where the Chancellor reveals to Marley about how her father basically killed her mother with neglect. And so Marley confronts the king and the king kicks her out, like disowns her. It's really, really pretty tough. Yeah. Eventually, our heroes find their way back to 12,000 BC with the help of the time machine, and they get to Mount Woe. Uh, there are various earthbound folk living here. They basically live in caves and dress in rags. The, the class differentiation between the earthbound people and the enlightened ones is stark. Yeah, there's, there's a comment being made there as well. So eventually we get to the top of Mount Woe. We fight a, a big monster and release the Guru of Life, Melchor. It is the same Melchor we know from 1000 AD, who lives out by the mystics on that other continent, which makes it interesting. So since this Melchor created the dependent that he gave to Scala that eventually ends up with Marley, when he asks you if he can buy it in the Millennial Fair, yeah, I mean, he recognizes the pendant, right? Right. And that's pretty cool. That's a neat little detail. So do you think he wanted to buy it because he thought he could use it to get back to his time and, like, face the queen? Who knows? I don't think it's ever made specific, but you could absolutely infer that, and it would make sense. So Melchor explains that the more energy the Mammon machine absorbs, the further the queen degenerates into madness. Having broken the seal that was uh, imprisoning Melchor, uh, the Mountain of Woe, which was one of those floating islands, collapses. The people around seem to be okay, but uh, like it's a pretty big event, I should think. Sure, anytime a mountain collapses. <laughs> Melchor explains that the Mammon machine, if it's brought closer to Lavos, it might wake up this alien parasite creature. Uh, Scala arrives here in the Earthbound village. There's this whole thing where uh, the Earthbound, Scala and Janice both, there's this whole thing where the Earthbound people are very deferential toward her, and she says, stop degrading yourselves. We enlightened ones were once the same as you. The only difference is that we are under Lavos's control. So there's that. Good for her. Janice, on the other hand, just says, what a dirty hovel. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, she's maybe one of the very few people who can truly take the moniker Enlightened One. She explains that the Ocean Palace is now operational, but that without her, without Scala, the Mammon Machine will not work. Unfortunately, Dalton arrives. Dalton uh, attacks Melchor, kidnaps Scala, incapacitates our party, and gets away. By the time our characters are awake again, Scala and Dalton are gone, and, and Janice. So we've got to go to the Ocean Palace to destroy the Mammon Machine. Melchor gives Chrono the Ruby Knife. It's made from Dreamstone, that red stone that we had to get in 100 gazillion years ago BC to, to repair the Masamune. It's also, Melchor explains, the same stone the Mammon Machine is made from and the Pendant is made from. So with the Ruby Knife, 
this red stone knife, we should be able to destroy the machine. So there's a big dungeon. The Ocean Palace is this big, scary, blue-black dungeon with these sort of molten, orangish-yellow, I assume it's meant to be lava or molten metal of some kind. And you run into Mune, who says, the black energy grows, something scary is waking up. Uh, and, and as you're running through the Ocean Palace, you see into the, the chamber where the Mammon Machine is, uh, and you see the interactions between Scala and the Prophet and the Queen. So the Queen tells Scala to energize the Mammon Machine, which she does, uh, and then collapses, and the Prophet shows concern for Scala. Eventually you run into Masa, who says, The ancient red rock has been passed down through the ages. From it, a magic pendant and a knife were made. We embody Melchor's dreams, sealed within the knife. Now hurry, if you plan to confront the Queen, we're counting on you. Which does lead me to wonder if Masa and Mune are within the knife. Does that mean Doreen, their sister, is independent? It would certainly make sense. But it's never confirmed. I don't think Doreen ever shows up again. Yeah, I don't think so either. But I, I think that, that it's highly implied, which again is a, a nice piece of subtle storytelling, which we hadn't always seen, even in you know some of the best of the Final Fantasy games before this where they would, you know, come out and tell you those kinds of things. There's some room for interpretation, especially more toward the ends of games, but there's a lot of these little subtle moments where it's kind of up for you to decide, and I like that. We fight Dalton again a couple times in the Ocean Palace before we finally get to the, the chamber where the Mammon Machine is. Chrono throws the, the ruby knife into the Mammon Machine. Masa and Mune are ready to get this done, which was not quite clear to me the first time I played this. But once Chrono throws the knife into the Mammon Machine, it impales it, and the knife transforms and becomes the Masa Mune, which is recognized by our characters. So the reason you saw Masa and Mune as you were going through the Ocean Palace was because they are embodied within the knife, which then becomes the sword, the Masa Mune. Scala says that unfortunately that sword alone cannot stop the machine and Lavos appears and also kicks your ass. So once our party is defeated, the prophet appears and reveals himself to be Magus, which is probably c clear from some of the musical cues. Right. Uh, and, he, and he says, uh, you know, I've waited a long time. And the queen says, you're a false prophet. And Magus says, bite me, old lady. Paraphrasing, uh, <laughs> paraphrasing. No. He, he, yeah, yeah, totally paraphrasing. Magus fights Lavos and gets his butt kicked by the Queen and Lavos together. And it sort of makes it seem like the Queen is controlling Lavos, but I get the impression it's more the other way around. Like, Lavos is working through the Queen. Right. With all our heroes and pseudo-heroes collapsed, it looks like basically uh, we, were, we were here to fail. But Chrono, Chrono stands up. And he's not going to let this just happen. And the queen says to him, you, you challenge Lavos with that battered body of yours. And you see the electricity crackling on Chrono's arms, uh, you know, presumably him channeling his, his lightning magic. And he looks like he's ready to try to take on Lavos again all by himself. But Lavos is far more powerful than that. And with a beam of power, Chrono is disintegrated. 
<laughs> um, what? <laughs> this was a big WTF moment in gaming. Uh, did not see that happening. It was rare for these games to kill off major characters in general. Gallif was kind of a big deal. All the people who die in 4 come back, except one. And he was never... You couldn't construe him to have been the main character of that game. There's very clearly a main character of Chrono Trigger. His name is Chrono. It's right there. It's not especially subtle. This was a major surprise and one of those moments like if you you put this on tv if that was the cliffhanger at the end of your season people would there'd be reaction videos of people online <laughs> going wait what where do you go from there the this is the hero we've been following the whole time and also in a time travel story you know where obviously then you start to think oh yeah there you can find an answer to that within the mechanics of that but it's a risky thing to do because typically the main time traveler is the person that can kind of glue all of the events together and make it so that even when there are weird, if you want to call them plot holes or just kind of loops that get created or paradoxes, you can excuse it. There are theories, arguably mainly for convenience, that your time traveler has this kind of cloak of protection that once you start traveling through time you kind of make the rules a little bit different and so maybe they don't apply to you the way they would other people and that's how some time travel stories make it okay for their characters to say meet themselves in the past or something like that there's a different set of rules that guide how time travelers get to experience everything so as long as your time traveler, your main conduit for this story is alive, you're good, right? <laughs> well, good-ish. <laughs> uh, beca because the rest of our heroes are in this palace as it's falling apart. Scala is able to use the last of her power to send us to safety. And this is the last we see of Scala. Which is, for such an important character, is, is really interesting. Lavos breaks through the planet's crust, shoots its laser beams, and destroys the Kingdom of Zeal. The floating continent collapses into the ocean. There's this big tsunami. So not only are the Enlightened Ones destroyed, but the Earthbound Ones, too, because this tsunami wrecks their town. Uh, presumably, a lot of people die. There's this little island that's like the only refuge, the only place where people are still alive. And thanks to Scala's protective pendant, we end up there. So the Elder, who's been taken care of since we appeared, tells us that Melchor has been sucked into a portal. Janus was also sucked into a portal. Nobody's seen Scala. The Epoch, however, has appeared nearby. It's almost as though it followed you here. And for the first time, you have to make a party of three without Chrono. Yeah. Throughout this area, you will find Earthbound and Enlightened Ones living together. And it seems like the next thing to do is just going to be to get in the epoch and, like, I don't know, find somebody to help. But then Dalton, frickin' Dalton, shows up and has renamed the Kingdom of Zeal the Kingdom of Dalton. And I'm in charge now. And I've got my... And I've stolen your epoch, which I'm no longer going to call the epoch. It's going to be the Arrow Dalton Imperial, and it's going to be my Sky Throne. Something to be said about... Get 
men who name all their stuff after themselves. So you get taken captive and, and you're being held in a little room aboard this giant airplane called the Blackbird. All your equipment and money is gone, so it's good to have Isla in the group because she's a barehanded fighter, so she can still fight. And you go through the air ducts, diehard style, and you happen to see Dalton affixing wings to your epoch, which is like the one good thing he does in the entire game. You can find your stuff, you fight bad guys, you have to like go around to these various chests in different rooms to get all your stuff back. Then you fight Dalton as he is riding aboard the epoch. Uh, which would be a really cool scene in that, you know, when we do that remake that we're going to get to do with HBO. Yeah. <laughs> because you've defeated all his little golem monsters, when he tries to summon a golem boss, it doesn't work, and he gets sucked in his, to his own portal, and that is the end of Dalton. Fitting. <laughs> so fitting. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Nice. He gets himself sucked into his own portal. Well done. Well done, Dalton. So our heroes try to steer the Epoch and accidentally fire on the Blackbird. And that ship goes down, and then you get this scene of the Earthbound people like cheering the the fall of Dalton, because F that dude. <laughs> <laughs> you do eventually land the Epoch, and you make your way to this area called the North Cape. And there, there stands a, a man with blue skin and long ears and a purple cape. It's Magus. And it Magus says, behold, everything's at the sea. Gone is the magical kingdom of Zeal and all the dreams and ambitions of its people. I once lived there, but I was another person then. And then you get some of Magus's memory between uh, the Queen, Scala, and the three gurus, Melchor and Balthazar and Gaspar, are all trying to tell the Queen, we can't do this, we cannot continue to try to suck energy out of Lavos. And then these warps start opening up, and that's when Janus gets sucked in. And that's when the various gurus get sucked to their time gates. We find that Janus appears in 600 AD and is found by the large green mystic named Ozzy, which is how Janus becomes Magus. We find that Melchor ends up in 1000 AD, which is why we know Melchor from 1000 AD. Balthazar, the guru of reason, shows up in 2300 AD, gets to work on the epoch. Gaspar, the guru of time, ends up in a no place and he comes to realize very quickly that he is at the end of time which tells us that the old man we've been talking to at the end of time is actually the guru of time though he doesn't quite admit it right away at this point we get the option to fight magus what do you think drew so obviously frog who has hated magus this whole time it's been much the reason for him coming on this adventure with you, he killed his friend and turned him into a frog, is ready to throw down. And for Frog, that was the biggest reason why on initial playthrough, I wanted to fight him and kill him. That plus, we've kind of been programmed with these video games, you know, looks like a bad guy. He's been acting like a bad guy this entire time. Killed a bad guy. <laughs> killed a bad guy. Killed a bad guy. You know, it's... it's about as much as I, I thought it through at the time. But I think, I don't know if we knew or somehow we were just enamored with the character because I don't think we did. I think we knew that if you kill him, you don't get to use him in your party. And right. we wanted to do that. Right, yeah, because he's cool. Yeah, I don't think I've ever played through this game and fought Magus here. I think I've always invited him into the party. And if you do, he says... 
Gaspar, the guru of time, might know how to bring Chrono back. So I don't know how you get that information if you take on Magus. Yeah, I'm actually not sure because, like you said, I've, I've never done it. I do think it's interesting as a mechanic, and like we talked about along with one of our big questions, a, a sort of meta comment on free will and having consequences, that if you decide to go the maybe more cathartic route in that moment and allow Frog to kill Magus, it might feel good, but you do reap a, a consequence of it, which is not getting to know a little bit more about this character, not being able to see what he can do in battle, what, you know, getting to hear that cool music more. <laughs> the Ocean Palace, which we thought was crumbling, doesn't. And it appears to hover over the planet, kind of like the meteor again in Final Fantasy VII. And it appears uh, hovering over the planet throughout all of the time periods. Which is super cool and weird. So the Ocean Palace, now known as the Black Omen, hovers there until you're ready to go take on the endgame. I think it also reminds you of the giant in Final Fantasy IV and some of the more spaceshipy stuff in that game. So at this point, you can just go and beat the game. But there are several things you can do before you beat the game, one of which, for my money, the most important of which, is Resurrect Chrono. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> so now that we know that the old man at the end of time is the guru of time, if you go and talk to him, the first thing he says, like, he's one of those sort of watcher type characters. He doesn't want to interfere. He feels like he's interfered too much. He shouldn't interfere anymore. And he says, I have nothing to give you but this song. And that's when the Memories of Kronos song plays. It's really uh, quite sad. But after a while, he relents, and he gives you what is called the Chrono Trigger. It looks like an egg. He says it is pure potential. By unleashing a specific course of events, it can have a powerful effect on time. Ask the one who made the epoch how to hatch it. The egg will have an effect equal to the effort you put into your search. There are various things you can do here. You can, for example, go talk to Chrono's mom, which is really sad. But basically what you need to do is you need to go to the House of Horrors to get a clone of Chrono. You can, I can't remember what the minigame is, but you can do a thing where you get a doll that looks just like Chrono. It is cool that you got to go right back to the very first major event of the game that was so lighthearted at the time and do this silly thing for a very serious purpose. So if you go back to, uh, the, back to the future, 2300 AD, you find out that Balthazar put his memories in that new that was asleep. Which makes me wonder, like, did that new not have any plans for his life? But g getting past that for the moment, Balthazar through the new tells you that you need to go to Death Peak, which is the area from where Levos, like, arose. You get to the top of Death Peak, and that's where you can release the the power of the chrono trigger because of all the effort you put into everything you've done so far you can use the chrono trigger and it's not real clear what's going to happen i do want to make a quick observation here that you fight levos spawn throughout death peak they're like miniature levoses which is kind of gross yeah with the power of the pendant the chrono trigger rises into the air and explodes and at first it looks like nothing's going to happen but then there's an eclipse and then the eclipse is a space-time warp, and it warps you back to the fight with the Queen and Lavos right before Chrono's about to be killed. And everybody else is still. So what you can do is you can go up and you can take Chrono out of the beam of death that's about to get him and put 
the doll in its in his place and then leave and so it's the doll then that is destroyed and not chrono so in almost any other time travel story this would feel pretty cheap and it would beg a lot of questions about why not do something like this for a lot of other problems that arise throughout the game and one as you just mentioned you go through quite an ordeal to be able to go to this very specific moment in time but something we maybe haven't made a big enough deal about to this point and something i actually really didn't like when we first played the game because i wanted to go to all the in-between times but there are fixed times that you can go to you can't just travel to whenever you want and while that might feel in some ways like a limited contrivance for them to just tell the story they wanted to be able to tell it also i think really adds to the power of this moment because it's been built into the story that our heroes have time travel ability but it's quite limited to where do the gates go and then the epoch will still only fly you to these fixed moments in time that you don't have a ton of control over and like you said it just kind of it doesn't have control over space you can't go i need to go to this exact place at this exact moment that's never been allowed to our characters so i think they did a pretty good job of making a big deal of that and kind of getting past what might otherwise feel like oh yeah you used time travel in a time travel game to save the main character from dying also, the clone thing is quite clever. So with our hero Chrono back in the party, talking to the guru of time, he will tell you, you have many paths open to you. You can go straight to fight labels. You can do that. But, but, in the Middle Ages, a woman's sheer determination brings a forest back to life. A fugitive in the Middle Ages maintains an evil hideout. There's a task to be done in the future where machinery originated. And there's a very special stone that can shine its light on each generation from the distant past to the far future. There's the ghost of a lofty knight slain by Magus in the Middle Ages who haunts the present. There's an object in the Middle Ages that sparkles like a rainbow. One of you is close to someone who needs help. Find this person fast. Awesome. So there are some things you can do. That's, right? First of all, that's a super cool <laughs> way to set up what is essentially a game mechanic of things are opening up now and you can go do side quests in all these different time right. periods however you want. But that's so cool. And now your time machine flies, so that helps, that is helpful. Right. Thanks, Dalton. So I'm, I'm going to bust through these pretty quick. So I'm going to go through these in the event that I've got them in the strategy guide. There's some ruins in the north in 600 A.D., they're both in 600 and in 1000 AD, but you've got to get them fixed up. So you've got to like fight the monsters and then hire the carpenters and then fight the monsters and then hire the carpenters. And then eventually in 1000 AD, if you have Frog and you go to this grave, you will see the spirit of Cyrus. Cyrus has maintained as a spirit largely because he's worried about Frog. He calls him Glenn, not Frog, by the way. And knowing that Frog is okay, he decides it's okay for him to, to move on. There's, there's also a lot of really cool weapons and armor in the Northern Ruins. But the most important thing is that with Cyrus feeling like he can move on, Frog also feels like he can move on, like he was sort of holding himself back. And then Masa and Mune speak through the Masa Mune 
that you know now that frog no longer is holding on to this guilt they can unleash their full power and the masamune becomes your most powerful sword again sweet there is this desert on the southern continent that has existed for the entire game and if you go into the sinkhole in this desert you can fight these monsters that have been basically killing the plant life all around and then you can go to this house where a woman named fiona talks about how she's always wanted to rejuvenate the the environment in the area but it would take hundreds of years well, we know a robot who can live for hundreds of years. And if Robo agrees, you can basically rebuild the forest. And when you go back to 1000 AD, instead of a desert, as it has been this whole time, it's a forest and there's a shrine to Fiona and and on the altar of the shrine is Robo. I love this one. It's so cool. Such a clever use of both a time travel mechanic and a robot and being able to leave him in one time period and then go pick him up in another. There are some fun, interesting versions of this in like, for example, legends of tomorrow, some characters get left in a time period for a, you know, like a year or something. That's, that's pretty common, but to, to blow that idea out to somebody being left somewhere for 400 years. And then he gets to rebuild a forest, which, you know, we're just going to be marks for. And drives home a lot of the, the nature versus industry stuff with this floating spaceship of death in the sky. We're just out here rebuilding the forest. After that side quest, there's a couple of neat little scenes. All our heroes are gathered around a campfire while Luca fixes up Robo because Robo's been, you know, 400 years of building a forest. He needs some maintenance. And we get this neat exchange. I'm going to paraphrase a bit. But Robo says... After 400 years of experience, I have come to think Lavos may not be responsible for the time gates. I have come to think that someone or something wanted us to see all this, the different events over time that we have witnessed. It's almost as though some entity wanted to relive its past. So there's some question about who this entity is. <laughs> yes, there is. <laughs> now, I have always thought, even just in this game, even before playing Chrono Cross, I assumed the entity was Scala. Yeah, me too. And I've seen some other really interesting theories that the entity actually refers to some sort of living embodiment of the planet that you're on that does not want to be destroyed by Lavos. I could see that, especially after fixing a forest. Right. Having this conversation. I really love that interpretation, but I need to go back, and we will when we get there, and replay Chrono Cross. Because like you said, m more light, much more light is shine on this idea in that game. Eerie, and God, there, sometimes the writing in this game is really, really good. So there's, a, there's an exchange in this conversation between Marley and Luca, where Robo's talking about, you know, people often uh, regret decisions they made. And Marley says, well, that happened when our time comes. And Luca says, probably. Marley says, is there a point in time you'd want to return to, Luca? And Luca evades, which, and we'll get to the reason why in just a moment. But I want to end with saying, uh, I want to end this part by saying that Robo says, it is unknown whose memories these are. It may be something beyond our comprehension. Our journey may come to an end when we finally discover the identity of the entity. Now, just noting, we never discover the identity of the entity. Right. And even spoilers for further ahead, like I said, there is still debate. Chrono Cross it all you want. I've done some research, and 
there is not a consensus on what the entity is, and I love that. So Luca, it turns out, does have a time and place she wants to go to. She opens up a very specific portal, and instead of being bluish, blackish red, it's, or excuse me, bluish, blackish purple, it's bright red. And she goes back in time to her house when she's a little kid. Now, all throughout the game, if you go to Luca's house, Luca's mom just sits in her room and doesn't do anything because several years ago there was an accident and her legs don't work anymore. Well, that's the time we've come back to. Luca chooses to use her understanding of this machine and the time portals to save her mother. Mom's skirt gets stuck in a machine. Little girl Luca tries to help, but doesn't know the password. You can do some searching around and find the password, and it turns out the password is Luca's mother's name, Lara. So you have to find the right spot and press the L button, the A button, the R button, the A button, and you will save Luca's mother. It's really, it, yeah. it's a quick scene. It's really tense. Yeah. Like, it, the music, the, like, she doesn't scream really, but, you know, it, it feels like she's screaming. It's just awful. Yeah. But being able to save her is awesome. Yeah. And when you get back, Robo is there. When Luca goes back to uh, where our heroes are, Robo's there. And he has created for her a piece of amber that he had been, like, compressing in his chest compartment while rebuilding the forest. And he says to Luca, you've got a kind heart. Aww. Yeah. One of the next things you can do is you can take Magus to Ozzy's fort and fight Ozzy, Slash, and Flea again. So we didn't really mention last time we talked about Ozzy, Slash, and Flea being named after musicians, but in their original names are Vinegar, Soy Sauce, and Mayonnaise. <laughs> so, you know, there's that. And there's a reference to that in Chrono Cross, too, with characters Salt and Pepper. <laughs> That's right. I forgot about that. <laughs> uh, so doing that will will make it so that the mystics that still exist in the world will be less antagonistic toward the humans you can go to the genodome in 2300 a.d and fight the mother brain it's basically a robot that wants to eliminate all humans listen well humans labos's children will one day have to leave to seek new planets and pray this world could sustain them if humans were not around we robots will create a new order a nation of steel and pure logic a true paradise so stop your foolish struggle and succumb to the sleep of eternity. So this mother brain, sort of a, an evil artificial intelligence, wants to wipe the rest of the humans off the planet and was planning to use both Robo and another robot, a pink robot with a green bow on her head named Atropos. So it turns out Robo, whose original name is Prometheus, had a relationship with this pink robot, I guess feminine because it's pink, uh, also named after one of the three fates, Atropos, the, the eldest of the three fates who would snip the lines of mortal thread. Mm. So there's a fight back and forth between them. You know, the heroes win. It's really sad that Robo's got to fight Atropos. Then you fight the Mother Brain, and humanity might continue to live out past 2300 AD. Not sure. And good luck. There's a couple more things to do. You can get uh, the Moonstone from 2300 AD, take it back to 65 million bc and put it in this beam of sunlight then you've got to collect it again in 1000 a.d but first there's a greedy mayor of the town of poor and so you've got to go back to 600 a.d and give his great great grandma jerky so that she will teach her children to be giving so that you can get the moonstone again take it back to the sun palace and then collect it again in 2300 a.d 
All of which you do so that Luca can create like a super awesome gun for herself. There are some ethical questions there, but we'll leave those for a future episode. <laughs> and the the last thing you can do is another item quest. There's this explorer you can talk to all throughout the game named Toma. He's just always telling you about his adventures and his explorations. Eventually, you can find, doing some back and forth, he went on this quest, and you can find his grave in 1000 AD and pour one out for him, pour some soda over his grave. The spirit of Toma will appear and tell you where the rainbow shell is. So then you go back to 600 AD and collect the rainbow shell. You take the rainbow shell to the king of Guardia and say, would you hang on to this for us? Then you go back to 1000 AD, and it turns out the king, Marley's father is on trial for having stolen and squandered and then sold the rainbow shell so there's another trial and we get the trial music and there's this whole thing and so you have to like go into the dungeons and there are there are mystics there there are monsters guarding it but you can get a piece of the shell and bring it back as proof but the trial room the courtroom is locked so there's this really neat scene where marley like climbs up into the back of the trial there's this big stained glass window and she bursts through it like she breaks the window and jumps into the courtroom to save her father. And after having that fight with her father and having been kicked out of the castle, it's really quite sweet. Turns out the Chancellor in this era has been replaced by the descendant of the Yakura creature you fought who who kidnapped Queen Lini all those years ago and is out for revenge. So you can defeat him and release the real Chancellor. And then the King tells Marley... Uh, about how he was actually there when her mother died and it was very sad and she always uh, you know she always loved you and like her last words were something along the lines of eventually she's going to bring home the person she wants to spend the rest of her life with and you should you should treat these people well and it's really it's really quite sweet yeah a little blessing for chrono before they would even know once you get all those side quests done and you're geared up and, and the world is as good as you can make it, you can go to the Black Omen. It's this big freaking dungeon. Like, I remember it taking, like, we started as soon as we got home and we had to pause for dinner and we played well into the night trying to beat this dungeon. Yeah. Eventually you fight the queen. Then you fight the mammon machine. Then you fight the queen again, but she's just like a head and arms. Yeah. She summons Lavos, and Lavos erupts from the earth. Uh, and then you fight Lavos again, uh, and you defeat Lavos. And then you go inside his shell, much like Sin from Final Fantasy X. And then you fight another Lavos, which is just a bust and arms and looks like sort of an alien suit. And once you defeat that, then you fight the actual Lavos, which is called the Lavos Core, which is like this alien-type critter. And, and then that's basically the end of the game, except for the epilogue. Yeah, you defeat Levos, so you prevent the events of 1999, which has been your goal since discovering that. And, you know, you, you can't save everyone everywhere, but you've done your time traveling, and so it's time for everyone to return home, and we get the final couple of scenes in the re-release. We would get an anime ending with it as well, where we see... Chrono and Marl get married, which is fun and interesting. And we get to see Frog being knighted and returned to his human form, though they don't show us his face. We get to see, like, the sides of it, green hair, human. He gets his music. It's Glenn again. That's pretty cool. Isla gives Kino a ring and then gives Kino a ring to give her. 
Yeah. So presumably they get married. It, it's revealed that the old man from the future, Doan, is the descendant of the Guardia line and that Kino and Isla are the ancestors of the Guardia line. So there's that. And then everyone has to go home and you get to see Robo. There's actually this bit between Robo and Luca about not, about maybe Robo doesn't exist in the future because we've erased that, that right. disastrous future. But you do get to see uh, a scene like when you're flying through the epoch in the end credits, Atropos and Robo are sitting together on a grassy hill. So there's that. Mega's standing on a bridge looking awesome. Right, right, right. And then... And then... And then... Well, so so that's the ending, but there are a lot of other endings, and maybe we'll save that for our wrap-up episode. I think so. Because this episode is getting a bit long. But there is one more thing we should mention. <laughs> do, do you want to mention it? Sure. And then the anime version of it closes out with Luca and a little robo... Somehow she's apparently figured out how to make one. Um, she can do anything with technology. She built herself a little toy. She's the best. It's really quite cute. Uh, they're walking through the forest, and they find a child, a baby, wrapped in a white blanket with a pendant. Believe it or not. Not just a pendant, but the pendant. The pendant. Around her neck. And this is a very, very important character for the events of Chrono Cross and, and tying all of this stuff together and, and, and some of what we've talked about. And so, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we, we just, we have to leave it there, right? We have to leave it there. I think so. Even though we're, we're totally into spoilers and all that, just in case there are people who enjoy a little bit of mystery as we go through some of those, that's... That's a fun one, and it'll be fun to come back to it when we do get into the events of Chrono Cross. That's it for this episode. Thanks for listening, and thank you to everyone who's reached out to us. Feel free to let us know what we missed, got wrong, or should have mentioned. You can follow us on Facebook and Twitter at FFWeeklyPod, or you can email us at FinalFantasyWeekly at gmail.com. Join us next time when we get super deformed, team up for attack, and listen to the whispers of a far-off promise. <laughs>